Before we get into the situations that floating is good for, what exactly does floating mean anyway? Floating is defined as calling a bet on one street with the intention of stealing the pot on a later street. Now, it's important to point out that floating can happen on either the flop or the turn, but the discussion about floating during this lesson will be focused solely on flop play, because we're going to spend some time talking about floating the turn in lesson 13. Anyways, floating the flop and stealing pots away on later streets is a strategy that many No Limit players are probably familiar with, and even if you haven't perfected it, there's a good chance that you've at least experimented with it a few times at the tables. But regardless of the floating strategies you've found to be successful in either No Limit or PLO, just realize for now that the profitability of a float comes from having the ability to bluff, semi-bluff, or value bet your hand on later streets. In other words, floating in position provides you with a higher level of playability, as well as more opportunities on later streets to gain some profit that bluff raising or outright folding doesn't. In fact, one of the biggest complaints I get from students sounds something like this. Hey John, I totally suck at playing the turn man. Whenever I see but the flop and get called by someone with position on me, I have no clue what to do when the draw gets there, or really any type of card that doesn't improve my hand to some degree. How the hell do I beat the players who just call me every time I bet and make my life hell on later streets? Well, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how to adjust to these players, but the main thing I want to point out is how difficult you can make it on players when you simply call in position and make them play three streets against you. And while we're on the topic, there's something I really want to point out before we go any further. The rest of this lesson focuses on a variety of strategies that you can use to make life difficult for your opponents, but that certainly doesn't mean that your options are limited to the topics that are covered here. Whenever you see an opponent do something that makes you uncomfortable, then take note of it, steal it, and then use it on the other players. For example, if it really tilts you when someone always floats you in position, then start doing it more against other opponents. It's one of the quickest ways to get better, and it's one of the reasons why I encourage players to look for tough games to play in. Anyways, remember that in Lesson 2, one of the reasons that position is so valuable in PLO is your ability to represent a wide range of hands? Well, floating is one of the simplest techniques that you can use to accomplish this, so let's take a look at what kind of factors we need to consider to become world-class floaters, as well as making our out-of-position opponents hate us. The first thing you need to know is that the vast majority of good floating opportunities happen in heads-up pots when you have position, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you should float every time you find yourself with position in a heads-up pot. But if you're considering a float, what are the main factors you should be looking for? The first, and definitely the most important factor to consider, are the tendencies of your opponents. Ideally, the majority of your floats will be against weaker players, but there's also a few other flop tendencies to look for that are more specific than simply labeling a player as weak that we'll discuss in a moment. Next, board texture plays a key role in determining how profitably you can float. Under certain dynamics, or against weaker opponents, you can make an argument for floating on almost any board texture. But in general, there's a few board textures that you should be floating on a high percentage of the time that we'll go over in the next couple of slides. Last, the strength of your hand, as well as the number of turn and rivers that you can improve on, have a big impact on the type of line you should take post-flop. And as you'll see in a second, it rarely makes sense to float with no equity in PLO. Now that we've defined the three factors we should be looking for, let's take a closer look at each one individually. Alright, in previous lessons, we've talked about a variety of scenarios where understanding the tendencies of your opponents is crucial for making the best decision available, and floating is no exception. The first thing to look for is how often they're c-betting, and for what it's worth, this should definitely be one of the stats you want to have on your HUD. 
Generally, most players display the percentages for how often their opponents c-bet and fold the c-bets on their HUD, which, which makes sense because as far as stats go, it's a pretty reliable stat that offers valuable insight into how someone plays post-flop. But this is also a stat that depends on how big the sample size is that you have. Don't make the mistake of thinking a player is c-betting 100% of boards when you only have 25 hands on the guy. Now, I don't want to spend the entire time talking about c-betting HUD stats, but since we're on the topic already, I want to point out a few things. First, only paying attention to how often someone is c-betting can get you into a lot of trouble if you don't inter interpret the frequency correctly. Simply put, it's really important that you remember to take into account other pieces of information available in the hand about your opponents than solely relying on the c-bet stat. I mentioned in a previous lesson that HUDs are an amazing tool if you know how to use them correctly, but they can also cost you a lot of money if you misinterpret the information given. For example, most players' c-bet percentage is a lot higher in heads-up pots than it is in multi-way pots. And likewise, players' c-betting tendencies can vary a lot on different board textures. Some players c-bet dry boards much more than they c-bet wet boards, while other players might only be c-betting every hand against you because you've folded to every c-bet so far. For example, a certain player might be c-betting 85%, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to c-bet into three other players on a jack-10-9 board without a very strong hand. By now I think you get what I'm trying to say. HUDs will never be a substitute for human observation, and you'll never get any better at poker if you rely on HUDs to play poker for you. Another tendency to keep an eye out for that should encourage you to float opponents lighter are the players that c-bet the flop and then check-fold the turn with a high frequency. We love players like this, because they make our lives easy by creating a bunch of dead money, only to let us take it away on later streets. Put more simply, these are the guys you want to take a note on that says, doesn't barrel the turn light, or shuts down on later streets with air. Moreover, as I said in the first slide, forcing your opponents to bet twice and play later streets against you out of position definitely makes you much tougher to play against. And in general, anything you can do to make the other players at the table uncomfortable is definitely plus EV. Last, weak bets from weak opponents generally means, you guessed it, a weak hand. Depending on the board texture and your hand value, both of which we'll talk more about in a second, bluff raising might be the best option, but no matter what line you choose, just make sure you don't let the fish off the hook with a weak flop c-bet. Make them earn it from you. Are you getting this stuff? Alright, let's check out the next slide then. As we learned in Lesson 8, board texture plays a key role in defining what the optimal post-flop strategy is. And although I said earlier that you can make an argument for floating on almost any board texture under the right circumstances, there's generally a few board textures where floating is much more effective against a standard or unknown opponent. Now, floating on dynamic boards works well for a lot of reasons. And just in case you're in need of a reminder, saying that a board is dynamic simply means that the current nuts are likely to change by the river. See, we've mentioned several times before that one of the main benefits of being in position is having the ability to represent a wider range of hands, right? Well, floating on static boards can be difficult because the value of your hand is basically fixed onward from the flop. Whereas on dynamic boards, the goal is to basically just rep whatever it is they don't have. To put it in layman's terms, the range of value hands that we can credibly rep is much higher on dynamic boards than it is on static boards. There's few things that make an opponent more uncomfortable out of position than forcing them to bluff catch you on the turn in the river when the nuts are constantly changing, which means that our main goal should be to force them to make a hand that beats us. I'll take you through a few hands after the lesson, but here's a few examples of the boards I'm talking about. 8-7-deuce two-tone, king-nine-six two-tone, 
and 10-5 deuce rainbow are all boards that players typically c-bet with a high frequency, but that, but that can't take much heat without a strong hand on later streets when they're out of position. Now, this was touched on earlier, but one of the golden rules of floating in PLO is that barring some very opponent-specific reads, it's rarely plus EV to float without any equity. In No Limit, it's more common to see floats without any equity, because there's many more way-ahead or way-behind situations post-flop. But regardless of what game you're playing, life is always better when you have some equity. Luckily for us, we're learning how to play PLO, which means that since the distribution of equities is much smoother than in other games, we're more often than not going to be flopping at least a small chunk of equity. By now you might be thinking, alright Casino Crime, I see what you're getting at. You flop equity so often in PLO that it doesn't make sense to float someone unless I have some equity to fall back on. What else do I need to know about hand values to wreck these dudes at my table? Man, I love how you're thinking ahead. Pairing hand values with opponent tendencies gives us an infinite amount of situations to go over. And unfortunately, I live a pretty fast lifestyle, which means I don't have infinity to explain each one individually for you. What I can give you is a pretty easy rule of thumb, which is that instead of floating, you generally want to semi-bluff raise strong draws on the flop. But on the other hand, you should either float or toss your weaker draws into the muck on the flop. This depends somewhat on the actual strength of your draw and the number and type of opponents in the hand. But generally, bluff raising strong draws is better because... Well, first of all, remember that draws are still... just draws, which doesn't guarantee that you'll win the hand. And given that the majority of hands on any flop can have up to 40% equity, even on scary boards, means that getting someone to fold away whatever equity they have is a good result. Secondly, if you do in fact have a very strong draw, like a pair plus a wrap, or a pair in the nut flush draw, slowing down by just calling in position can get an opponent to check fold scary turns with hands that they otherwise would have stuck their stack in with on the flop. On the other hand, floating with weak draws makes sense because we can gain more information on later streets by smooth calling. If they continue to barrel, then we can just fold, but if they check, we might get an opportunity to take it away. But bluff raising the flop can be pretty expensive, particularly if we get called and have no equity. Even when we're in position, playing big pots on later streets on scary boards can be very awkward if we don't have any equity to fall back on. Simply put, the weaker your draw is, the more opponent-dependent your decisions become. The presence of backdoor equity can turn a spot that would otherwise be unprofitable to float into a very profitable one. Consider the example you see here, where we hold ace-king-queen-5 on a 10-5-deuce rainbow board. At first glance, it looks like all we have is a is middle pair with some side cards, which by itself might be enough to justify a float. But if you look a little closer, the combination of overcards, backdoor flush draws, and backdoor straight draws provides us with more than enough turn cards to make a good decision on. If the turn brings a monster draw and our opponent fires pot, we can call with some implied odds and see if we get there. If the turn is a brick and he checks, we can stab at the pot and try to take it away. If we pick up some equity and he takes a weak stab, we can semi-buff raise and take it down that way as well. You feel me on this? Okay, let's move on. The last piece of the floating puzzle that we're going to cover has to do with the spots where floating out of position makes sense. Now, floating out of position generally isn't a line that I or any others take very often, but there's certainly a few spots where you can take down the pot if you use it correctly. But for the most part, good opportunities to float out of position arise naturally. And what I mean is that you don't want to fall into the habit of doing it just for the sake of looking cool, which I've seen a lot of students do in the past once they know it exists. The best out of position floating opportunities come around when you have a strong read on your opponent. But without a strong read, 
it's generally a bad idea to float out of position. Because if you call a pot-sized flop bet with the intention of betting pot on the turn, that means that you're risking four bets to win two, which means that your out-of-position float has to work two-thirds of the time to be profitable. And yep, you guessed it. Floating out of position with equity is infinitely better than doing so without any equity. To be successful without any equity requires a very strong read on your opponents, but if you have some equity, you at least have an escape hatch to save your ass when you, when you make a bad read. In short, being out of position with no equity on later streets is definitely negative EV. Alright, here's a hand I played a while ago, uh, where we're bluff catching out of position in a 3-bet pot. Folds to us in the small blind, uh, pretty standard raise overall. Uh, in my opinion, with the queen 10 7 9 single suited. We get 3 bet by the big blind, and we decide to make the call. Um, I think our call is pretty standard, although um, reads on the villain are important. He's like a tight reg. Um, I guess you could fold this pre. I think it would be like a pretty tight fold. Um, so I don't think calling is like a big mistake, especially since this hand seems to play decent in 3-bit pots that we can check jam um, and stuff like, th like that. And I even think that um, even the tighter regulars seem to open up their 3-betting ranges a lot, blind versus blind. Would you agree with that, Yurik? Yeah, there are definitely a lot of players that are 3-betting wide with a small blind open. Right. Cool. Um, so we make the call. Uh, we flop bottom 2 on a queen-jack-9 monotone. Check it to our tight regular friend, and he bets 21 into 36. And uh, so the reason I included this hand was I think that this is one of the toughest spots, both personally and that also uh, that I've seen in students as well, is when you have these, like, bluff catchers um, against, like, tighter opponents on these, like, monotone boards that sort of it's like you have a medium-strength hand on these monotone boards um, and you don't really know if, like, for example, you could check-raise and turn this into a bluff, if your hand is strong enough to check-call, um, if you should just check-fold because their range is too strong. Um, again, like I said, I mean, I think that this is one of those spots where that little voice in your mind starts to creep in and kind of says, oh, man, if I, like, check-fold bottom two, like, I'm getting owned. Um... But I think that that's, again, like the hardest part to figure out is when is our hand strong enough to check call um, on these monotone boards? So um, I know Yurik and I uh, talked a little bit when we were analyzing this hand that truthfully this is probably against like said villain uh, that he's got like a tighter range. This is probably best to just check fold even though it seems pretty nitty. But the main problem here is that his 3-betting ranges, even his medium-strength hands, are going to have us beat. Um, like, if he ha if he flopped, like, the King-10 straight. Um, if he has, like, an overpair and a gutter. Um, if he already has, of course, like, the nut flush or the second nut flush. Could even have, like, top two pair that's better than ours. Basically, what, we're, what I'm getting at is that all of his medium-strength hands beat us, and it's um, difficult for us to improve. And additionally, since the SPR is so low, um, if we did actually decide to take um, a creative line and turn our hand into a bluff on later streets, the SPR is just too low for that. So, um, I don't know if I missed anything, Yurik, if there's anything you want to expand on there. Uh, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I think it definitely makes sense to just, uh, before you say, okay, I have a bluff catcher, he can, he will uh, he will see that with his entire range here. Like, you got to have uh, to think about his actual range and how you're performing against that range and if we just pick up like random numbers just to to make it more clearly like let's assume that 20% of the time he actually has a high flush and he will just continue barreling then other 20% he will have the straight and may also be like 
double barreling just for sin value. Mm-hmm. Other times he has the ace blocker and will also continue to bet. Other times he has like uh, like like overpair with a gut shot or an open ender, but then he will improve to a better hand. And even if we get to showdown, we will lose at showdown. Right. So there are just so many ways that we lose actually, and we won't get uh, won't be able to kind of realize our equity and get to the river. Right. Um, with a winning hand, basically. So yeah. the only thing, basically, what we are hoping is that we check call the flop and then turn and river uh, blanks like eight or lower. And uh, he checks it. Just he gives it, does us a favor, and checks it down. And we just can't really count on this, uh, that. That. Yep. So, on this type of board, we are yeah better off by just check folding the flop and avoid like putting in that money and have to fold the future bets. Yeah, exactly. You touched on a lot of really good points. Um, <clears throat> I just want to expand on that a little more. Kind of returning to the basics, uh, you want to ask yourself, how am I going to make money with this hand? <laughs> The only way that I can really see us ever making money by calling this is if we have an opponent who's going to let us get the showdown. Um, but again, like I don't think that this is one of those opponents. If he's want, if he's seriously just going to fire and then check it all the way down every time, then yeah, you should probably call this. But otherwise, um, given the fact that his range is stronger than ours and also that he's going to be able to play perfectly with his bluffs, um, it's just not going to be profitable. And again, harping on what Yurik said and what we've mentioned in other lessons, uh, the quickest way to lose money in poker is to peel fold, uh, build up big pots and then give up on them. And that's exactly uh, what I ended up doing in this hand. And that's exactly what you should avoid. So <clears throat> I ended up check calling, of course, making a straight on the turn, um, and then folding when I actually made my hand. Uh, so again, like... Uh, there's just not very many ways for us to win the hand on the flop, and I think that it's one of those spots on uh, on monotone flops where you should just fold. And I think it also highlights the difference between like um, board textures, like heavier and lighter monotone boards. Like this is a heavier monotone board, so I think it's a lot different than if we flopped. Of course, if the flop was like a queen nine deuce, um, I think that our hand, of course, would be much stronger on that board. But again, like there's so many medium strength hands in his range that are stronger than ours on this board. Yeah, definitely. That's a big point that they are, yeah, just his range will include so much more hands that even if they aren't flushes, they still will have his beat or so that's a big difference between those heavy boards, monotone boards and the lighter boards and they play very different. And I think in the next one, uh, we can expand a little bit more on that and like explain them more concepts, how to adjust to the different board textures. Definitely. Let's, uh, let's move on to it. Hey, what's going on guys? Casino Crime here. Now if you like this video and you want more, then go ahead and click the subscribe button below right now. And if you want to join me for more of my 6 max success secrets and free video tutorials, just click the link to the right. See you inside the trainings. Good luck.